Right, let's do a sermon. Um, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, this is the sixth um, and final talk that we're going to do this morning on this series, uh, Family Values. We've been looking on a Sunday morning and we've been looking in our life groups at what it means to be a part of the family of God. Because um, the Bible, and in particular the New Testament, um, is very keen on the idea that, in the words of Sister Sledge, we are family. Jesus taught us to refer to our God, the incredible, awesome, majestic, wonderful, magnificent God that we've been singing to this morning as our Father, a heavenly Dad who cares for his children, who gives us good things. Jesus refers to his followers as brothers after the resurrection in Matthew 28. And later on, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the church, um, he referred to his fellow believers in the same way. He called them brothers and sisters. And he tells his spiritual son, Timothy, he says, don't rebuke the older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. We are family together. And just like a family, we have certain values, certain traditions, certain truths that we uphold. And we've been sticking them up on our metaphorical fridge um, for the past few weeks, um, just to remind ourselves as we've gone along what they are. We started in the first week by talking about how when it comes to God's family, we are accepted and not rejected. Accepted, not rejected, because God's family is a place where anybody can belong. And then we looked at how we are useful and not useless. Useful, not useless. We're given new purpose and new meaning in the family of God. No one is left on the outside. After that, we looked at how God's family is a place where we are formed and not forgotten. Formed, not forgotten. Our Heavenly Father loves us way, way too much to leave us as we are, but He wants to help us to become the best that we can possibly be, and He uses His family to help get us there. We looked at how God's family are missional and not miserable. Missional, not miserable. Um, we're not supposed to just sit around and wait for this life to be over, but our Heavenly Father has a mission for us to fulfill. A life of adventure and excitement together. And then finally, last week, we looked at how in God's family we are forgiven and not forsaken. Forgiven, not forsaken. Just like any family, sometimes we fall out. Sometimes we argue and fight, but Jesus calls us to radical forgiveness, not to hold on to the hurt of the past, but to understand just how much it is that we have been forgiven by God, and then to forgive others in the same way too. So we've looked at quite a lot really over these past five weeks, and there have been some real um, challenges put before us. Certainly I've felt challenged in preparing the series, and I hope um, you felt challenged in studying it together. Are we accepting of all? Do we recognize the value in everyone? Are we helping other people to mature in their faith? 
Have we remembered the mission? The mission is, is key, it's central. Are we holding on to unforgiveness? Real tough questions that we've been asking ourselves as we've gone through this series. And so this morning I've just got, I've got one more, one more value, one more challenge for us to look at together. Because when it comes to God's family, I think that we are called to be selfless and not selfish. Selfless and not selfish. What do I mean by this? Well, I mean that the love that we demonstrate for one another should be a selfless love. It should be about putting the needs of the other before our own. Because family is the place where we should be most freely able to express our love for each other, right? Generally speaking, families are the place where children learn what love looks like. As parents, we have a responsibility to to model healthy relationships for our children. But often, as sinful human beings, the love that we have for each other is imperfect. It's, It's messy. This week, I heard my daughter tell my son that she hated him because he broke a small portion of her Lego house when he fell over on top of it. And then 30 minutes later, he told her, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Do you want to know why? He got out of the car before her. She got out of the car before him, sorry, on the schoolroom. <laughs> Extreme reaction. Neither of my children are mourning people. Um, and unfortunately, neither am I. But you know, the excuse they're just children doesn't really cut it because sometimes I'm the same. I say things that I don't mean. I act selfishly and cruelly to the people that I love the most. And I really um, resonate with the Apostle Paul when he writes, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do but I, what I hate, I do. And it's because the love I have to give to my family and my friends is imperfect. It's fundamentally flawed. It's faulty. And the reason it's faulty is because I'm sinful. Paul goes on to say, as it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. The simple fact of the matter is I do not love others the same way that God loves me. But I want to. I want to do better at this. This is the journey that I'm on as a Christian. I'm learning to understand that love more and more, to take the love that I've received from my heavenly Father and to pass it on to those around me. I want to know what love is and I want God to show me. There's a specific word um, in the New Testament that is used to describe the type of love that God shows to us. And it's the word agape. It's a Greek word. That's what it looks like. And in our Bibles, it's translated very simply as the word love because we only really have one word for love. But in the Greek language, um, which much of the New Testament is written in, there are four. Um, There's storge, which means uh, affection. It's the kind of love... You experience a sense of contentment. It's often used to describe the love between parents and children. There's filio, which is the kind of love that exists between friends. It has to do with companionship and camaraderie. And then there's eros, which is passion and desire. That's where we get our English word erotic. 
And then there is agape, which is divine love. It's the love that exists between God and man. It's a selfless, self-sacrificing love. <coughs> Possibly the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16, talks about this love when it says, "For God so loved, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever should believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life." The Apostle Paul was obsessed with this love in his famous chapter on love found in 1 Corinthians 13, the one that's often uh, read at weddings. He tries to pin it down. He says, agape is patient. Agape is kind. It does not envy. It It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Agape does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes and always perseveres. I wish the love that I had for other people looked like that. Later in his letters, John writes, this is how we know what agape is. (coughs) Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Because, as always, Jesus is our best example. He's the personification of agape love, the one who lived selflessly, the one who gave his life for us. And so this morning, I just want to talk to you about three things that I think we notice in the love that Jesus has for us. Three things that I think will help us to live selflessly and not selfishly. This is going to be a classic three-point sermon, folks, okay? So pens at the ready, if you're taking notes. Point number one, Jesus understood his value. Jesus understood his value. I think one of the main causes of selfishness in the world is the belief that we do not have enough. We believe that we need to fight for what is rightfully ours. Our wants, our desires must be fulfilled above all else. We feel as though we've got something to prove and we're constantly comparing ourselves to others and finding, defining our value upon the apparent success of those around us. When others have more and we have less, we feel like a failure. And so we strive, we, we fight to get the things that we think will make us happy, all the while ignoring the needs of those around us. Jesus, on the other hand, took a different approach. I wonder um, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to John 13. John 13. The scene before us in John 13 is the Last Supper. It's Jesus' final night with his disciples before the crucifixion. And we're told in verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. And again, the love that's being spoken about here is agape love, God's perfect, selfless love. John continues, he says, The evening meal was in progress, 
And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I'll just pause there. It's a very familiar story to many of us here, I'm sure. Certainly um, a preacher's favourite. But what I want you to notice about this story this morning is where Jesus' value comes from. He tells us very plainly in verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He had come from God and he was returning to God. He knew exactly who he was. His hope and his security was firmly with God. He knew where he was from and he knew where he was going. There was absolutely no need for self-promotion. No need to claim his authority, no need to put himself on a pedestal or make himself look good in front of his followers. And because of that, he was able to serve them selflessly, to get on his hands and knees before them and to fulfil the role of a servant. Of course, he did much more than that. Less than 24 hours later, he died for them, as he did for us. We read about this in Philippians 2 over the summer, our summer Bible series, um, Paul's great poem that says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest um, honour and gave him the name that is above all other names. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. You see, Jesus understood his own value. He knew where he was from. He knew where he was going to end up. Now you might think, well, that's it's all right for Jesus. He was God after all. But you know, the Bible teaches us that we can be sure as well where we're from and where we are going to. John concludes his first letter by saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. We, this morning, have a guarantee of where we are going. That's good news. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, an inheritance that is far greater than anything that we can amass on earth. You know, for a follower of Jesus, the selfish, the selfish pursuit of wealth and status is pointless because we already have everything that we need in Christ. Our future is secure. As the old hymn goes, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. 
Our life is hid with Christ on high. And it's from this this place of security, this concrete assurance, this ironclad promise that we can begin to let go of the need to assert ourselves, to promote our own interests, to put others in front of ourselves and to work to secure our own future. And then we can start to live selflessly. That's step one. Know that you are valued. Know that you are loved and that your future is secure. Get that right first. Point number two of my three-point sermon. Well, halfway through already. Jesus noticed the need. Jesus noticed the need. You see, Jesus' security in his Father allowed him to notice the needs of those around him. There are so many examples of this in the Gospels. It was really hard to kind of zero in on one this morning. As I was thinking about it this week, I thought of um, Zacchaeus, you know, that that tax collector that was just trying to catch a glimpse of, of Jesus. And so he climbs that tree and then Jesus spots him. Out of the whole crowd, he sees him and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. It's me and you, buddy. We're going we're gonna to hang out together. A man who was looking for something else. And when Jesus saw him, he changed his cheating ways. He was never the same again. Of course, Jesus did the same for Matthew, didn't he? Another tax collector who no one would go near. I thought of that Samaritan woman at the well who came to draw water in the middle of the day to avoid everybody else. She didn't come in the morning with her friends, she had none. She came in the middle of the day to avoid the gossip and the slander about her cheating ways. But Jesus waits for her. He waits. He sends the disciples away. He says, lads, go and sort out lunch. I'm going to hang here. And he meets her and he speaks kindly to her. And he changes her whole life. I thought of that um, disabled man at the pool in Bethsaida waiting for healing for 38 years. And it says no one would help him into the water. He was alone in a crowd of people, ignored by everyone. But Jesus saw him and healed him. I thought of the widow who'd lost her only son in the middle of a large crowd of mourners. And Jesus saw her. It says he noticed her tears and his heart went out to her and he gave her back her son. And again and again and again as we read the Gospels, we notice that Jesus is on the lookout for those who need a saviour. Jesus is on the lookout for those who need a saviour. But I I did zero in, perhaps my favourite example, uh, it comes from Mark 10. Mark 10, if you want to turn there. Um, I'm going to read it to you anyway. It says um, in verse 46, Then they came to Jericho. That's Jesus and his disciples. Um, A whole crowd of people. It was late in his ministry on earth. He'd become very popular. So there was a whole crowd of people that followed him wherever he went. Mark carries on. He says, Jesus and the disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. They were on their way out. They were done. In fact, they were heading to Jerusalem, if you you read around. It says, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, uh, it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd that were Jesus, they, they weren't a quiet crowd. They were a rowdy bunch. They were laughing and jostling. And Mark tells us as they passed in verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Shh, calm down, Barty. We're leaving. 
or on our way out. Just, you know, go back to your begging. Don't, don't bother Jesus now. Good grief, man. Have some dignity. Shh. But it says he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then it says in verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. Jesus stopped. I like to imagine he came to a dead stop and then all the disciples just went into the back of him like dominoes and fell over. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. What do you want me to do? He took an interest in him. He zeroed in on this guy. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Of course he wanted to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. You notice what happened there. Jesus stopped, the man's needs were met, and he went from being on the outside of the crowd, pushed aside, to being one of the ones following Jesus. He was brought in as the need was noticed. I'm sure there's a, a point to that somewhere. But I think the main point for us this morning is that Jesus stopped. He was willing to be interrupted to stop what he was doing in order to help somebody in need. I think this is actually a really hard lesson for us to learn because, you know, we're busy people. We have full-up lives. We run from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, with barely a moment in between to catch our breath. And we use phrases like, oh, if only there were more hours in the day. And often we can treat the needs of those around us as a distraction or an inconvenience. I'd love to help. I just I haven't got time to deal with that today. Or what's worse is sometimes we don't even notice. We miss the fact that people are around us with needs because we're so absorbed in what it is that we are doing, focusing on ourselves, our need, our agenda, our wants, going back to, to point one here, aren't we? You know, what if sometimes we miss people that God has deliberately put in our path because we're too absorbed in our own journey? Selfless, selflessness is stopping long enough to notice the needs of those around us. Here's a really bold prayer that you can pray next time you are in a crowd, at the office, on a commute, wherever it may be. Lord, who do you want me to notice in the crowd? Where's the need? Whose life might be changed by an encounter with the living God today? Jesus stopped and people's lives got better. Good, isn't it? Leads me to my final point this morning, point number three. Jesus added value to others. Jesus added value to others. Once we stop long enough to notice the needs of those around us, we then need to do something to help. I want to suggest to you this morning that if our ability to live selflessly comes from the knowledge that we are loved by God, then arguably the best thing we can do for others is to help them realize the same thing. You see how that, that works. God loves us. We are accepted and not rejected. We are made useful and not useless. We are formed and not forgotten about. We are forgiven and not forsaken in order that we might do the same for others. Jesus demonstrates God's agape love in the way that he treats those who have needs. So what does he do for them? Well, firstly, 
Very often, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see that he heals them. In the first century, um, people believed that illnesses and disabilities were the result of living sinfully. You had been afflicted by God for the way that you had chosen to live your life. On one occasion, the disciples, they, they didn't really understand this, and they said to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or, or his parents that he was born blind? And, and Jesus says, well, neither actually. But for the people living with illnesses and disabilities, their firm belief was that God hated them. They must be despised by him. They must be scorned and rejected. So when Jesus heals them, it sends an incredibly powerful message. You are not forsaken. God has not abandoned you to this illness. He loves you still. How might we communicate God's love to those around us? Another thing we often see Jesus doing is restoring people socially and giving them back their dignity. When he's approached by a man with leprosy who asks for healing, he reaches out and he touches him. This is an amazing statement. An incredible statement at the time. Lepers were forced to live outside of the towns and villages. They were, they were put into caves and mountains. They weren't allowed to come into contact with others for fear they would spread the disease. They had to live in isolation, not knowing the touch of anybody else in their lives. But Jesus reaches out and touches him. And he tells him to go to the priest, to be given the all clear, to return to society, to return to others. Another occasion where we see both healing and restoration is found um, in Luke 8. If you'd like to turn there, Luke 8, I'm going to read to you from verse 42. This is what Luke says. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. They almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject for bleeding to bleeding for 12 years, and no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, that's Jesus, and immediately her bleeding stopped. She was healed, fixed. But the story doesn't stop there. It says in verse 45, Jesus asks, who touched me? And they, they all deny it. And Peter says, well, Master, you know, there's a big crowd of people here around you pressing in. What do you mean who touched you? <laughs> like literally everyone's touching you. Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And the woman's mind must have been racing. What should I do? Should I say anything? I, I don't want to. It's embarrassing. But what if he already knows? Will he be mad at me? Would he be um, angry? Should I just keep quiet? Maybe I can sneak off. And then it says in verse 47 that the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why he had touched why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This is so beautiful. In front of the whole crowd of people, he calls her daughter. A loving term of endearment, he tells her, you've been healed. Now, without our, our kind of first century um, hat on, we might look at this and think, well, it's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? That poor woman having to share her personal problem in front of that whole crowd of people. Couldn't he just let her slip away with the, the healing and be done with it? But actually, he's giving her another gift. Because according to Jewish thinking at the time, if the woman touched anyone, she would pass her uncleanliness onto them. 
And her uncleanliness would have prevented her from going to the temple or being part of the worship. It would have made her friendless, ostracized, an outcast. Just like the leper, she would have been on the fringe of society. And so Jesus stops. (laughs) Again, Jesus stops. And he takes the time in front of the whole crowd of people to redeem her in the eyes of all that were gathered there. He treats her like a beloved daughter in front of everyone. I think that's incredible. I think that's beautiful. It reminds me of a story that we've shared before from the um, sociologist and former spiritual advisor to the president, Tony Campolo. I just want to read it to you in his um, words. It says, one day, about the noon hour, I was walking down Chestnut Street, Philadelphia, when I noticed a tramp walking towards me. He was covered with dirt from head to toe, and there was filthy stuff caked on his skin, but the most incredible thing about him was his beard. It hung almost down to his waist, and there was food stuck in it. The man was holding a cup with McDonald's coffee, and the lip of the cup was already smudged from his dirty mouth. As he staggered towards me, he seemed to be staring into his coffee cup. And then suddenly he looked up and yelled, Hey, mister, do you want some of my coffee? I have to admit, I really didn't. But I knew that the right thing to do was to accept his generosity and said, "I'll, I'll take a sip. As I handed the cup back to him, I said, You're getting pretty generous, aren't you, giving away your coffee? What's gotten into you today to make you so generous? The old derelict looked straight into my eyes and said, well, the coffee was especially delicious today, and I figure if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with other people. I thought to myself, oh man, he's really setting me up. This is going to cost me at least $5. I asked him, I suppose there's something I can do for you, isn't there? And the tramp answered, yeah, you can give me a hug. He says, to tell you the truth, I was hoping for the $5. He put his arms around me and I put my arms around him and then suddenly I realised something. He wasn't going to let me go. The people were passing by on the sidewalk. They were staring at me. There I was, dressed in establishment garb, hugging this dirty, filthy tramp. I was embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. And then little by little, my embarrassment changed to awe and reverence. I heard a voice echo down the corridors of time saying, I was hungry, did you feed me? I was naked, did you clothe me? I was sick, did you care for me? I was the tramp you met on Chestnut Street, did you hug me? For if you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. Living selflessly means that we look to create value in those around us. To help others to see themselves as God sees them. Even if that means that they are simply worthy of a hug. A loving embrace. We're very privileged. Many of us have easy access to hugs. But some people don't. Some people never have someone holding them and loving them and being kind to them and generous to them. You know, God's family, we're called to be selfless and not selfish. Jesus knew where he was from and he knew where he was going. And so do we. Our future is secure. We have nothing to prove, no need to assert our dominance or grab what we can while we can. We are free to love those around us. We are free to love those around us. 
Jesus stopped. And so must we. We need to make sure that we aren't so wrapped up in our own little world, so obsessed with being the stars of our own show that we miss the needs of those around us. And Jesus reached out and touched those that nobody else would go near. He touched those that nobody else would go near. And you know, more than that, he called them sons and he called them daughters. There are a lot of people in this world who don't know their own worth. Life has repeatedly told them that they are worthless, useless, forgotten, forsaken, rejected. But with God's family, it's different. And so as we begin to understand what God's love looks like for us, we need to show others that same love, to do our best to live selflessly. We don't keep it in here. (laughs) We don't keep it to ourselves but we take it out there to the world. I wonder if the band um, would come and join me. We're going to sing a song in response. Maybe it'd be good just to quiet our hearts for a minute and just pray our own prayer of response to that this morning. Maybe consider our own journey, our own lives, the crowds of people that we are in day to day and think about whether it is or not we live as selflessly as we should? The answer for me is I don't. (laughs) Absolutely not. But I want to do better. I want to understand the love that God has given me more and more and more to the point where it just pours out of me into the world. Because I think that's the thing that makes a difference. Let's pray.